This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu. And I'm Alex Diamond. And we are the hosts of this special series. Ethnographic Marginalia brings together a set of conversations around ethnographic practice. In each episode, we will converse with an ethnographer about their research design, process, and fieldwork experiences. This special series centers the dilemmas tribulations, mistakes, and pleasures that go into doing ethnographic research. We hope to use the conversations that transpire on this podcast as an opportunity to build community amongst ethnographers in various disciplines. Towards this end, we also have a website where we publish field notes, ethnographic essays, photo essays, and methodological reflections. Please visit our website, Ethnographic Marginalia, at www.ethnomarginalia.com to know more about how you can publish with us. We really look forward to hearing from you. Before we proceed with this episode, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Ethnography Incubator at the University of Chicago and the Lozano Long Institute for Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And on that note, let's begin. It is my pleasure to welcome today's guest, Dr. Sarah Brain, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Texas at Austin. Her research uses quantitative and qualitative methods, and most importantly for our purposes, ethnography, to examine the social consequences of data-intensive surveillance practices. Sarah is the author of a wonderful new book, Predict and Surveil, Data, Discretion, and the Future of Policing, which draws on ethnographic research with the LAPD to describe how law enforcement uses predictive analytics and new surveillance technologies. In the book, she shows that the use of big data and algorithms by police widens the scope of the criminal justice system, results in massively increased surveillance, and reinforces stereotypes and discrimination. Sarah, welcome to the program. Uh, Congratulations on a really thought-provoking book, uh, and it's a tremendous pleasure for us to have you on. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So Sarah, let's get started with uh, getting to know you a bit better. How did you become an ethnographer and, you know, how did you get interested in police surveillance in particular? We'd love to know more about that. Sure. Yeah. So I, um, I sort of have a longstanding interest in the criminal legal system. I think um, in part, you know, growing up in Canada, um, there's a lot of similarities between Canada and the U.S., but one of the big differences is simply the massive scope of the criminal legal system in the U.S. You know, the incarceration rate is so much higher um, here than in Canada. And I always sort of was interested in why and what that looks like. It was sort of this peculiar social fact to me. So when I started um, 
grad school in the US, I uh, thought I was going to focus on mass incarceration, but I became increasingly interested in sort of like the front end of the process, the feeder mechanisms into um, the criminal legal system. And so I started by using um, some survey data to sort of statistically model um, what happens when people come into contact with the criminal justice system. So like if they're stopped by the police, um, arrested, convicted, or incarcerated, how that then sort of shapes their involvement with other institutions that are important, like healthcare or um, financial institutions, that type of thing. Um, and so I did that research, and then I quickly sort of realized that we didn't have very much pre-existing data on the other side of the equation, on like the people who were doing the surveilling, the police. Um, and that was where ethnography really came in, where I realized, you know, if I want to understand how surveillance is occurring, um, you know, what police are doing, this type of thing, I was going to have to collect my own data myself. And so that was um, my first foray into ethnography, basically, was um, needing to collect my my own data. So I um, decided to focus on the LAPD. After sort of, uh, you know, I wanted to study how police were using big data. And instead of trying to focus on some representative department or something like that, I really wanted to look at one of the most technologically advanced departments mm -hmm. to sort of answer these research questions. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but I had no existing ties to any law enforcement agency. So, you know, I tried to get um, access to the LAPD, Chicago PD and NYPD at the same time and, and would just sort of go wherever that access took me. And um, LA ended up being, what worked out. And I'm super grateful because I just feel like, you know, the things I was able to observe and the people I was able to talk to was, was so illuminating. And now, I mean, now I'm totally addicted to ethnography. So <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of sold for life on that. Well, well, you're in the, you're in the right place, or at least we hope, we hope that this is a good place <laughs> yeah, for that. Yeah. The ethnography lab is great. Totally. We're all addicts. To the yeah. <laughs> Um, maybe we can go back just a, a little bit in, in that research process, because I think it's, um, it's really interesting to, to hear sort of how research uh, interests and fieldwork enfold together. Um, so in your book, mm -hmm. you talk about starting with federal agencies and technology firms, um, even like surveillance industry conferences, uh, before mm -hmm. you came to the LAPD. Um, as you were doing this, and I, I think you're you're a graduate student at this point, right? Um, yeah. Did did you have the same basic research questions? Were these changing as you sort of moved through different, uh, uh, I guess, research spaces? How how did all of that unfold? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think the. Um, the sort of descriptive questions, if you will, of like how do criminal legal authorities use data? How does surveillance happen? Um, you know, what are the different sources of data? What are the technologies that are used? Those descriptive questions didn't really change over time, but the analytic ones really did. And that like ends up being the focus of a lot of the book. And so, you know, for example, when I started the research, I had no plans to study police resistance to these new tools. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, in retrospect, naively assumed that um, they would sort of embrace a lot of these new surveillance technologies and they would say, you know, it, it increases their surveillance capacity, you know, data information is power. Great. Um, but on my very first ride along, I was sort of disabused of that notion um, where 
um, the police were quickly realized, you know, these technologies actually put them under increased surveillance as well, not by the public, but by their managers. And so they resisted those tools. And so, you know, on my very first ride along, I was like, wow, there's really a labor story here that Mm -hmm. was not in my original research questions when I proposed this project. But, you know, that ended up, um, taking the research in sort of a different direction. So, yeah, I mean, I think the descriptive questions stayed relatively constant, but, um, what ends up actually really being like the analytic meat of the book was, was quite unexpected. And I like that. I mean, that's, that's sort of one of the benefits of ethnography is you, Mm -hmm. you pivot based on what you're seeing and, um, what people are saying and, and, and that type of thing. And so, I think like the flexibility that ethnography allows there is, is, is very helpful for, for these sorts of questions where um, there isn't a lot of pre-existing research on the topic. Um, you know, you're going in relatively open to, to what you might find. Yeah. Um, so in the book, you explain that to protect the anonymity of your participants, you can't really go into detail about, you know, how you gained access to LAPD um, in, in particular, but uh, you just mentioned that you'd reached out to, uh, Chicago PD, NYPD, and LAPD, and LAPD worked out. Um, but you did mention that you started high in the organization and started developing these relationships. So mm-hmm. uh, we are curious to know how you presented your project to potential police participants and how they responded. Um, was there a lot of skepticism and suspicion? Uh, we imagine that's the case. Uh, but what was that process like in trying to get people on board? Yeah. So, I mean, the way that I presented the project was very much in terms of the descriptive questions of, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm interested in how the police leverage data and technology in order to do their jobs, um, in order to do their jobs better. And then I would ask questions in terms of um, the profession saying, like, how does it make your work easier? Does it make it more difficult? That type of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, like, the way that I was received, I mean, one of the main things that sort of was revealed over the course of the fieldwork is there's so much variation within um, a police department. And I think that this is like some of the, one of the weaknesses in sociological portrayals of law enforcement or of the police is they're kind of portrayed as a monolith. Sometimes it's like the police do this, the police do that. And you know, there's like 10,000 people in the LAPD, all with like different, you know, mandates, um, positions in the organizational hierarchy, uh, just like personal preferences, this type of Mm -hmm. thing. And so, you know, some folks who were really into technology, they were some of the, you know, early adopters of data-driven policing. Um, They were these like tech enthusiasts, they believed in evidence-based policing, sort of true believers, if you will they were pretty open to talking to me because they were proud of what they were doing. You know, they were Mm -hmm. like, we are a leader in the field. Um, We're making policing better. Like we're, we're doing a good job and using data in these effective ways. And I want to show you, like, I want to show off how well we're doing here. Um, But then with others who, you know, in general, were a bit more resistant to these kinds of things. Um, they were very resistant to talking to me. So I definitely would have interviews that were like, we would sit for literally half an hour and I would ask all of the questions and like every answer would be, that's law enforcement sensitive. That's law enforcement Uh, sensitive. That's law enforcement sensitive. And you know, that's like, that's interesting data in and of itself, I guess, you know, that that interview existed. Um, But yeah, I definitely had some sort of like, fruitless interviews, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, in that sense. But yeah, I mean, I think that generally 
there was also a little bit of a base level of, um, I don't know if skepticism is the right word, but just like hesitance to talking to me because my role was like a little bit unclear in the sense that they understand what journalists are, for example, and they really didn't want to talk to me if I was a journalist. Um, Mm -hmm. And they understand what like, students are like an undergrad maybe doing a project or something like that but PhD students like we're we're weird you know like we're these like in between kind of like yeah I'm gonna write a book in like five years about about this and like I don't like I don't know it just and so I think that um unfamiliarity or ambiguity often played out in my favor insofar as like it was a relatively non-threatening role Mm -hmm. to kind of come into the department as just like, Hey, I'm really curious. And I think you guys are using tech and data a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, so that, that was sort of, sort of how it was. Some, some people were very open to talking to me when they wanted to sort of brag about how they were using, um, data and surveillance tech. And then others just from the get go were not into it. Yeah. It actually reminds me so much, uh, of, instances in my own field work because I did some field work amongst traffic police in uh, oh, the city okay, of yeah. Hyderabad and the thing is that Hyderabad is kind of known for uh, being a very technophilic sort of mm. you know city and like aspiring to a tech leader status in India so it also percolates in imaginaries around policing and um, oh, there was yeah. a very similar kind of I guess yeah, there were these two camps where some police were always bragging about Hyderabad having high-tech policing. Mm. And there were others who were so skeptical of it. And just, they I mean, it was different because it's a post-colonial context. And it's mm-hmm. different uh, in that many police would just say that Indians will not respond to tech. Like, you need a stick, right? Like, all these sorts of assumptions yeah, okay. are what people respond to, right? And um, But, yeah, there was there was really that confusion um, in their minds as to like who I am <laughs> yeah <They're> like, <laughs> and then I would hear these rumors about myself when I heard one time that uh, someone from New York Times is here and I kept looking for this reporter and turns out they thought I was from New York Times <laughs> oh my gosh that's so funny yeah <laughs> it was like oh she's from the US and for some reason they thought totally. it was from New York Times and yeah but you're right I also felt like the ambiguity kind of played out in my favor especially in these sorts of sensitive-ish settings yeah it's it's better to have less defined an identity, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's super interesting. Looking for the New York Times reporter that ends up being you. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, kind of along the same lines of how how people responded to you, Sarah. Um, when not so much in the interview setting, but when you were uh, doing ethnography and, and maybe specifically ride-alongs, um, do you think your presence affected? police behavior? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that it did, but but how? And uh, I'm thinking specifically, yeah. there's this really interesting vignette in the book where um, you're riding along with an officer and um, he pulls up at an intersection and just starts uh, running the license plates of cars that are around, like to see if there's any sort of outstanding warrant or whatever um, with mm-hmm. those cars. Uh, and then turns to you and, and asks, uh, you know, what you think about that, if you think it should be allowed or not. Um, mm-hmm. So, we, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, that's, that's like a sort of telling, yeah. telling vignette in terms of the, the police themselves sort of being aware of your presence. So, so yeah, what, yeah. what can you tell us about that? Yeah, totally. I mean, like, look, like I study 
surveillance. That's like my focus. And I think that, I mean, I think ethnography is a form of surveillance itself, right? Mm -hmm. Like we are, you know, I'm not their employer, but I am a person watching them and taking notes on their behavior. And I think that it would be, you know, naive to think that my presence would not affect that. Um, of course, you know, it's impossible to observe the counterfactual of what they would have done had you not been there, et cetera. But I think that you can mm -hmm. like put some pieces together to try and make some inferences specifically about how or in what direction your presence might be biasing um, your data or shaping your data, shaping their behavior, that kind of thing. So, you know, imagine if somebody was watching you at work, you would probably kind of be on at least at the beginning, kind of like on your best behavior, you know, if someone's like, Oh, Hey, I want to see what it's like to be, to be a professor or to be a graduate student, you know, you probably wouldn't like immediately go on Facebook all day. You know, you would try and actually like do some of the stuff that we're like, supposed to be doing. Right. And so I think like, sure, maybe that observer effect fades a bit with time, but I think in general, thinking about this of like how one's presence is biasing the data. So I think in, in the instance of my field work, I think it was basically conservatively biasing um, what I was seeing, meaning like I likely observed officers being, um, you know, more compliant, um, engaging in less controversial practices um, than if they were not being surveilled by an ethnographer or by someone else. And I think that, you know, that direction uh, of the bias is, um, is a bit less problematic than if it was occurring in the opposite direction in this case, because I think in fact, what ends up happening basically is like, I'm understating some of the dynamics and the interactions and, and the claims um, that are of interest, like going on in the field. Right. Um, but I think there's like, there is one exception to that, or there's probably a bunch of exceptions, but there's at least one exception I can think of to that dynamic. And that's, um, um, to do with gender. So mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, I'm a woman and, um, I think it's something like under 20% of sworn officers in the LAPD are women. And, um, my, my sample of respondents was, was even fewer, um, than that. Um, mm -hmm. and so I think that, you know, the, the vast, vast, vast majority of research subjects I was interacting with were men. And so I think there was sort of some like, um, machismo type thing going on, mm -hmm. um, some dynamics with that. So, um, you know, I, sure. I don't know how officers would have behaved had I not been, or had I been a man. Um, but I am able to discuss this question with colleagues who are men who have done field work with the police. And of course it's not the same officers, mm -hmm. but you know, I, you can do some interesting kind of like triangulation and, and, and comparing and contrasting there. And I think that there was a gendered um, interaction dynamic that, that really played out. That's, that's really interesting. Um, and I wonder sort of following up on that, if even the way that they treated you, given that you were a woman, but also given that you were surveilling, right. You just said ethnography is a form of surveillance, yeah. which I think is really insightful. Um, you know, you, you write about there and you just, you just mentioned their resistance to some of this surveillance. Um, and mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, you're in a very different way, obviously, but you're also surveilling them. Um, mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so yeah, you, you wrote about, uh, that they, they lumped you in with pencil geeks, uh, their yeah. words, I think who worked <laughs> with data, yeah. which 
you know, I guess I guess we are pencil geeks and definitely <laughs> in many yeah, ways. Yeah. For the record, <laughs> that's what you are for the record, yeah. <laughs> that that that's completely accurate, true. Um, but yeah, I'm wondering if if there are ways that your presence wasn't just, you know, potentially contaminating the data, but uh, mm-hmm. may have mm-hmm. also even allowed you to to understand how they were reacting to this surveillance. Um or even if they were enlisting you as an ally in a way to show that mm-hmm, they're, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things you write about is, is not just that they were resistant to being surveilled, but that they were also uh, sort of felt like their street smarts were being discounted mm-hmm. as less valuable than big data algorithms. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I think so. Um, so like I'll, I'll first follow up on the gender thing and then talk about sort of the ally thing. So, with the with the sort of gendered um, dynamics at play, I think in some instances um, it was sort of a paternal interaction dynamic. So, like one time I was on a ride along and the sergeant um, said something like, "You know, it was it was dusk and he was like, oh, we have to get you out of the ghetto before dark.'" It's like okay. Um, or on another, the sergeant told me that he was speaking with this woman in Spanish. And unfortunately I don't speak Spanish, so I don't know if this is true or not, but he, um, you know, said that the woman saw me in the front seat of the cruiser and she asked if it was like, take your kid to work day. Um, and so there was sort of this like paternal thing that, that played out a bit. Um, and, and then in other instances, like it wasn't really paternal so much as, um, as, as more of exerting a machismo type thing, which I mentioned earlier. So on one ride along, we were at this like particularly um, gruesome crime scene. This, this child had been, they, they thought he was stabbed, but he had actually been shot. Anyway, he, um, it was in the middle of the night and my teeth were kind of chattering. And I think that it was, it was a really long ride along. And I think, so my teeth were chattering, like partially from being cold, um, partially from being tired. And partially it was just like a bit of um, shock from like all of the blood and the sergeant gave me his jacket. And, um, but first he checked the pockets and kind of like performatively was like, you never know what I could be hiding from my wife. Ha ha. And so that was like a little bit different. Like that, that wasn't really like paternal. Well, it started off being kind of paternal, but then it sort of became this like machismo thing. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the second question insofar as like in, enlisting me as an ally, I mean, that came up a lot wherein, you know, officers would say, would want to demonstrate like the continued importance of their, their street smarts, their lived experience, um, their on the ground knowledge um, of crime, of policing, of the city. And so, you know, a lot of the time they would say like, so, okay. In one instance, for example, um, he had his predictive policing map where you have these like squares basically where future crime is likely to occur and the sergeant was, you know, saying like, this is basically BS. Like, why is there a square there? I know where the crime's at. Like, I don't need an algorithm to tell me where they are. And look, I'm going to show you how stupid this is. And so then we drove to one of the predictive boxes and it was basically like a pile of dirt um, near the airport. And there was like no people, no crime, obviously. <laughs> and, and he used that to be like, see, like, I could have told you there wasn't any crime there. Um, you know, I'm the one who's been out here pushing the black and white for the past 20 years. And like, I could have told you that. And so there were these sort of like instances in which they would, I think kind of like, you know, invalidating the predictive algorithms or saying like, you know, I'm the one who actually 
actually knows this this information. Um, so that was kind of interesting to me too. Yeah, no, that that's really really interesting. Again, like so much of this resonates um, with with uh, several police ethnographies in in the global south as well. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've been excited to think through your book when I'm writing uh, stuff on policing of my own. But now I'm, I think yeah. this the behind the scenes is getting me even more excited. <laughs> um, yeah. And like, I don't write about a lot of this in the right. book because you, you yeah, always yeah. have to just leave so much on the cutting room floor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, so, you know, you talk about building relationships with participants as part of your fieldwork. And, uh, you know, I was just curious to know, have you maintained any of these relationships and um, or have you had the opportunity to hear from any of your participants who've read your book or articles or you know listened to any interviews or panels you've been on yeah I mean I so I maintain um, some but few relationships so not with mm-hmm. not with most of my respondents um, but with a few and to be honest no I don't think any of them have like listened to any you know, panels or, or read, you know, paywalled articles or whatever, but I did mail <laughs> copies of the books to some folks. And, but, um, most of my sort of experience in like seeing how my respondents react to my work is in, in two ways. Like one is I wrote, um, an op-ed in the LA times, which is like, you know, very public facing. And mm-hmm. so they responded to that quite directly. And mm-hmm. then, um, and then, also during my field work, I would come to my respondents sort of in follow-ups and say, you know, like, oh, here's like a one page description of some of my key findings to sort of like get their reactions. I mean, part of it methodologically was like, I really need to get the the descriptive empirical data right. Um, that was really important to me because I think that like a lot of officers and and then subsequently me, when I read like media portrayals of police use of surveillance tech, it's like, overblown, factually inaccurate. And like part of it is because there's so much secrecy around it, but like, I really, really, really needed to get the fact right. Um, and so I would come to them and say like, look, is this the right acronym? Did I describe like, you know, how you do this, this correctly. But then also I would share with them like some of my normative conclusions, you know, and, um, and they would, you know, always agree about the factual accuracy or they would correct me and then I would, would correct it. Um, but then there was like some disagreement about the the sort of like so what the implications or the conclusions um, mm. that as sociologists you know we're 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 pushed to go to that kind of like next analytic level. So, you know, yeah. for example, one of the arguments in the book basically is that the proliferation of all of these like dragnet surveillance tools these these tools that gather um, information on everybody rather than just those like under criminal suspicion. Um, results in the police surveilling all of these people who have no direct police contact. Right. And so one of the captains I talked to, you know, I I told him this is one of my, one of my arguments and, and he's like, I disagree. Um, and I was like, okay, like what about automatic license plate readers? Right. Like these are dragnet surveillance tools. They collect readings on everybody, um, rather than just those under suspicion. And so you can track like people's movements through the city and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, yeah, okay, fine. But like, I would say that's an exception. And for me, like it, it sort of is emblematic, but for him, it was an exception to the rule. For me, it kind of was the rule, you know? And um, so that's like w- one of the sort of points of disagreement type things that would come up. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, it, 
I think that it's funny. You always think you are like more important to people than you actually are in a way, you know, right? Like it's like, it's like when you're like, oh, did, did they like listen to interviews with you? Like, no, no they didn't. they're like doing their jobs. They probably forgot I even existed. A lot of them, yeah. but that said, I maintained relationships with some of them. Um, not in sort of a research subject way. Like I don't have an, an open IRB protocol, but you know, for me, um, it, it's been really interesting talking to a couple of officers as everything has played out over the past couple of years with, you know, for example, the killing of George Floyd or um, the election or, um, you know, BLM uh, protests, the, the defund movement, making it into mainstream discourse and that type of thing. And it's just been very interesting to me to have, you know, phone conversations or text conversations with them. It's given me sort of a level of, of insight into how they are thinking through um, some of these things. Um, but it, yeah, so that sort of has been how the ongoing contact has has played out. Yeah, I mean, I think you touched upon something so key here, right? Like, especially when working with or, um, I don't know, talking to people. I mean, I like the distinction between police as organization and police as institution, right? Like, mm. they're like two different things in a sense. And I completely agree that organizationally, there is uh, a representation of police being a monolith which mm-hmm. is problematic because it doesn't get into the labor dynamics of the police organization itself and the hierarchies and all of that. And then there's police's institution and like its effects on society. And at these uh, moments, like with the George Floyd um, situation, like mm-hmm. I, I guess, I mean, again, speaking, uh, thinking of my own research, like I did have relationships with interlocutors get very strained because mm-hmm. of the rise of, political fascism in India right like very quickly Mm. I picked up that like there were some inspectors and like senior officers who were so clearly pro uh, I don't know like uh, yeah they were pro a lot of the violence that's happening in the country right now and it just we've drifted apart mostly because it's just how do you talk to people who you like fundamentally disagree with in a sense right but Mm. then again um, I think it is important for the insight that it gives in times of crisis and yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if there's a severing of relationships on your end because of any of these events or incidents and um, or whether it was just like it just took a different yeah life. I mean I, I think that like when it became apparent that these weren't like flashpoint crises, crises, but this was like just the, the world order that was going right. to continue. Um, the conversations just sort of petered out mm. a little bit. Like I'm Canadian, for example, so I can't vote, right. but like, you know, a lot of them would message me like, if you could vote, who would you vote for in this election? Uh. <laughs> that type of thing. And you know, those types of questions, but um, yeah, yeah, it's, I wouldn't say, so the ones that I have had, ongoing relationships with they haven't been severed they've just sort of petered out um, right right yeah but that's really interesting thinking about it in your in your context too how there's a lot of overlap yeah i think there's so much um, emphasis on ethnographic uh, research on rapport building but i think we are not very well equipped on what do we do when um no like we don't really get a sense of how to handle uh, the the spoiling of relationships because of I guess political events right like that's not something yeah. that <laughs> just like not totally. a thing that came up <laughs> totally yeah you should write something on like ethnographic ghosting or something <laughs> <laughs> that's nice now there's 
there's a clear politics in your book, uh, Sarah, which I think is is admirable and it's important, right? That you know this surveillance that you're describing isn't treating everyone equally. They're you know particular marginalized black and brown communities that are that are bearing the brunt of this. You know, very related to to all the the George Floyd killing, Black Lives Matter protests, etc. That that you mentioned. Um, were you? I, I can imagine. I don't I actually don't know what the LA, LA Times op-ed piece said, but I can imagine that it manifested those politics. Were you? Uh, I don't know. Were you? Were you explicit about your politics with them when with with police officers? Um, did they ask? Did this come up? You mentioned them asking who you would yeah, vote for. Yeah, I mean, they, like, okay, look, like, a Canadian PhD student in sociology, like, they were calling me a libtard from, like, day one, right? So they know, <laughs> like, what probably my general politics are. But actually, like, this has been something that more I've grappled with um, with a sociological audience or an academic audience more so than the police themselves. And so far as, like, I, my... My first inclination, um, the first draft of the book was like, didn't take a super strong argument. It was too descriptive. It was too, um, just trying to like flatly describe or portray, portray the empirical contours of what was going on. I didn't want to like take, um, an explicit position in that way, um, I wanted to sort of like let the data speak for itself. You know, I was thinking more in terms of writing an article, like I'm testing a hypothesis, I'm rubbing it up against empirical reality, seeing what's going on. Um, but, you know, then when colleagues read the draft, the first draft of the book, they were like, this is a book, you have to make a really strong argument. Um, and so then it was really in the revisions phase when that, um, that argument came out more and more. Um, and insofar as the op-ed, I mean, the op-ed was like, I, I would say it actually wasn't particularly political. It basically, so, you know, when you're writing an op-ed, you need to think about who the audience is. And so the audience was the residents of Los Angeles, right? The taxpayers in LA. And basically the argument in the op-ed was like, your money is going towards all this surveillance tech. Did you know that? And like, do you want it to? And by the way, like, there's no evidence that it works. And so that was sort of the argument um, in the op-ed, which, you know, isn't like necessarily political. That's more like, you know, having to do with politics and resource allocation and that type of thing. But, um, but, but yeah, so, I mean, it, it was interesting, but I think that like, you know, from the, from the beginning, um, just sort of like being a PhD student in, in sociology, they they had <laughs> estimations of, of where I may lay, lie on the political spectrum. And that did actually I, almost that clarity, like helped them to be more open. You know, right. it, it, it's like, I was, it, it didn't preclude them from speaking openly with me. And it's like, you know, many of them were like, Oh, we want to try and win you over and that type of thing. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, it, it has been interesting. Definitely. Well, to shift to shift gears um, just quickly, uh, you you mentioned you know things that got stories, vignettes, experiences that didn't make it into the book that, that got left on the cutting room floor. Which I mean, I think we all experienced that as ethnographers, mm, right? Yeah. Um, this is a question yeah. that we love asking our guests. Uh, what's can can you think of maybe one incident, one experience that that didn't make it into the book, but 
but that somehow left oh. a deep impact on you or that that uh it was fascinating or or basically that you want to use this yeah. space to tell yeah i mean i love hearing this in other people's field work too and like i think you know i, I want there to be like a i don't really want to edit it but i want somebody to do you know a special issue of of a journal um where we just publish like almost a theoretical just like chunks of people's field work their field notes like you know yeah this doesn't fit into some broader argument um about something but like this is an empirical fact that i think is interesting that people should know <laughs> you know i would love to read that kind of thing um so yeah in the context of my work i mean a lot of the gender stuff i didn't write about um but i mean i think that when i think back it really is like and this just doesn't come through at all in the book um is like the sadness the like profound sadness that I observed. And by that, I just mean like the sadness of many of the incidents that we would respond to on ride alongs. Um, you know, it would be like, like somebody holding a baby, like screaming and crying amidst like a domestic violence incident or, you know, what I didn't know is how many people call the police because they're suicidal like, because they want to kill themselves and they have no one else to call. So they call the police. Um, like, I didn't know that. Or, you know, people struggling with mental illness. And so, like, if you think about it, the police are responding to calls like that people made or people around them made on what's often the worst day of their lives. And, you know, I, I think that an important question is, like, what would happen if the police showed up on the worst day of your life, um, you know, do they make it better? Um, why are they the ones who are responding? Like I, I, my take is that it kind of speaks to like the anemic welfare state that we have in the U S mm -hmm. the, the lack of other social services, um, how like resource deprived some folks are, um, both materially and relationally, you know, that it's like, okay, I have to call the police because I'm about to kill myself, you know? And that it, it was just like, so sad. I would finish ride alongs, like very, very tired. Um, just because there, there was such like a profound sadness, um, in a lot of the, the cases. Yeah. That's, that's really heartbreaking even to hear, you know, the, the, the descriptions that you've like briefly offered us and just really, really, really sad. Um, yeah, I wonder what that does to people doing this job on mm -hmm. a day-to-day -day basis, right? Was that something you picked yeah. up? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so look, I think th there's, I think there's a term for this. I forget what it is, but it's basically like creating sort of a cognitive dissonance or like a distance mm -hmm. between. Because if you think about it, like you know, EMTs and stuff, they have to do this as well. Right. Like you can't yeah. have like if you have you know some somebody in an ambulance at work showing up to you after you're in a car accident and they're all like, oh my gosh, like crying and stuff. Like they're not going to be able right. to do their job effectively. And so right. I think like professionally frontline responders, like they have to create sort of a distance, but I do think yeah. that that doesn't mean that it doesn't wear on them. Right. And I think that like one of the things that I did observe is that um, people lie to the police all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. And because like, you know, you're about to get arrested or you're about to like, whatever, you're going to lie and say like, no, I wasn't mm -hmm. doing that. Or no, 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 that wasn't me. And, you know, so 
how does it affect you as an individual if people are like lying to you day in day out? <laughs> a lot of officers that I I talked to, they were like very very uh, distrusting in their personal mm. relationships. They like often would think that their wives and girlfriends were lying, or and look like I have no idea if their wives and girlfriends were lying to them or right. not, but but they would express that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I'm, I'm inclined to think that, that how much lying goes on in their everyday lives um, played into that a bit, but, but yeah, I don't know. So that, you know, that's, that's another yeah. example of something I definitely didn't write about, but um, mm-hmm. is, is, is curious to me. Super interesting. But just to, I guess, change the mood of the conversation. My apologies. <laughs> No, not at all. This is very interesting. Um, yeah, but, you know, what were the ethnographies you were inspired by um, while doing your work? Or I guess another way to put it would just be what ethnographies shaped this book? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like, um, I mean, I love reading ethnographies. I, I find them like really immersive, really inspiring. And sometimes um, I make a practice, a less so just because I like don't have enough time, but now, but I would make a practice of like reading for 20 minutes before starting writing because it and reading something that was high quality before starting writing. Cause it kind of like, I think, you know, rewires your brain to, to sort of be thinking in a particular way in a particular cadence and stuff. And so I, I do really enjoy that in ethnography. I feel it was like what, what works best for, for that. And um, I mean, in terms of thinking of specific stuff, um, uh, Forrest Stewart's like down out and under arrest, uh, inspired this work in a lot of ways in the sense that I think that his work, um, I mean, also his new book, Ballad of the Bullet yeah, is so good. like, I, it just didn't exist, you know, then. Um, but, but yeah, his work is like this, this rare combination of being really theoretically rich, but readable mm-hmm. um, and also empirically careful. And in a lot of work, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a trade off, right? Like it can be right. super, super theoretically dense, but then like it's, it's a slog to get through. Right. Um, or, <laughs> right. you know, it's like really, really empirically careful and, and detailed, but, yeah. you know, not particularly theoretically rich, which is, which is mm-hmm. fine. It's a different thing. But I think that his work it, like yeah. is a fine balance um, of yeah. those different things. Um, and also like it just in the context of down out and under arrest, you know, like it, it, took place in LA um, mm-hmm. and Skid Row. And, you know, I didn't do fieldwork directly on Skid Row, but there, it, just being in LA, there was a lot of um, context and included a lot of material on the, on the right. police, of course. Um, so, yeah, I think that was, that book was inspiring to me both substantively and, mm-hmm. and also theoretically. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of both the books and yeah. like, practically anything forest, right? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's really, really like, I, I think you put it, very well it's it strikes that right balance between uh, between being so eminently engaging and readable and uh, extremely theoretically sophisticated and useful you know yeah that's great yeah so you know we've talked a lot about your book but we're both curious to know more about what you're working on now and i guess how has the pandemic shaped the project you're working on now uh, how's it going i guess yeah, so my fieldwork did definitely get interrupted by the pandemic, as as most people did. And so I've kind of like adapted in a couple of ways. One is just pursuing smaller kind of one-off paper projects that I can uh, do during this time. And then um, 
just sort of like put put the the second book on the on the back burner um, for a little bit. So the smaller projects that I'm doing, one of them is interview based, and I've been able to do all the interviews um, on Zoom, and that is basically like following a lot of what I saw in the policing context into further stages of criminal legal processing. So like following it into the courts, and so. I'm asking, um, I'm interviewing lawyers basically in order to understand how digital information broadly defined, whether that is, you know, um, information from people's cell phones, um, um, predictive policing forecasts, um, just like this massive array of digital information, how that shapes um, subsequent uh, decision making in, in the criminal legal process. So, you know, initially I went in thinking like, oh, this is a digital evidence project, right? Like thinking about how the proliferation of digital, ev- digital information means that there's more digital evidence. But what I ended up finding is that actually like, yeah, there is some of that, but that's pretty far along in the process. You know, the vast majority of cases, of course, don't even go to trial. Um, and so where that information is really coming into play is like at earlier phases of the criminal legal process in terms of like, you know, plea bargaining, for example, phases where there's like a lot of discretion, um, not a lot of legal checks, and a a lot of it ends up being like not legible or not visible um, um, to the public. So yeah, that's like an interview based project I'm doing. I'm also doing um, this theory paper um, with a few different um, colleagues where uh, it's called surveillance deputies. And it's this like idea that um, uh, uh, the state is like increasingly deputizing surveillance activity to sort of ordinary civilians, um, which is a longstanding process, but like it's really accelerated in, in recent years, um, because they're doing that through technology. So Mm -hmm. things like, you know, ring doorbells and, um, you know, the next door app, like these, these kinds of things. Um, and then sort of what are the implications then for, um, governance and accountability of the state more broadly, et cetera. Um, and then the, the sort of like bigger project I am doing um, is, well, I guess they all are, but is, is really focused on surveillance, but beyond just the criminal legal system. So, you know, I, I really think that surveillance is this um, ubiquitous social process and practice um, that go, that is ubiquitous within organizations. It's like routine organizational practice. Um, and, and I like to sort of think about it, or I think it's like more fruitful to think about it, not in sort of like a big brothery way in terms of intent or some sort of like evil intent, but rather this like quotidian organizational practice and that, that all kinds of organizations and institutions do. And I think it's kind of like a, an open empirical question um, how that plays out across different institutional contexts that have really different mandates. So like mm-hmm. does surveillance in the education system look the same and have the same implications as in the criminal legal system or as in medical care, you know, that type of thing. Um, and so, yeah, this, this like broader sort of comparative work looking at, looking at surveillance um, sort of in broader society is, is the book. And so I, I started by doing field work um, in an emergency room, but that like in like I literally did one day, and then COVID hit, and obviously right. I couldn't be like lurking around emergency rooms during COVID. So that was oh, that's, no. <laughs> yeah, that's like just on mm-hmm. pause. I would say. Yeah. yeah. No, these all sound so interesting, and we can't wait to read um, all the papers and the and the eventual book that comes out. Uh, very interesting stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, Sarah, thank you very much for taking the time to, to meet with us. Um, this was a, a fascinating conversation. Um, and Oh, thank and, yeah, you really... so much for having me. I loved your your questions and this, this broader project that you have going of um, ethnographic marginalia is so wonderful. Yeah, we also wanted to say that in case you do have these vignettes that you know, you want to send uh, somewhere, please send them to us. We are more than happy um, to be the space to foster these (laughs) (laughs) marginalia conversations. Um, Yeah, I keep, I keep like, you know, writing uh, a short essay to publish, but then I feel very selfish because I want it to be in the book. And then because I don't have a book yet, I I think there's nothing uh, left over as yet. But, you know, if you do have vignettes that you want to share with the world and you want space for it, please do. send uh, send them our way we'd be more than honored to uh, have them on our website cool sounds great yeah <laughs> all right take care sarah have a have a pleasant day and um, you know a good week ahead thank you you too